Hey, what up geeks, fanboys, fangirls, otakus, um, streamers, um, welcome to another edition of Talkin' Pop. It's the podcast of all things pop culture. I'm your illustrious host of Podchise, of course, is with me, my brother Biko. What's up, fellas, guys? How's it going? Uh, today is Tuesday, June 30th. Um, actually, today's a big day for me because it's actually my birthday. Woo! We would play the song, but that's heavily copyrighted, so... I don't think... I think the Happy Birthday song is public domain, isn't it? No. Really? The Beatles um, own that. And then Mike Jackson bought their catalog with that included. Huh. So, the Jackson estate owns it, technically. I always thought, like, the, the song Happy Birthday was, like, pretty much, you know, public domain. Like, you know how the Christmas songs are public domain? Yeah, but... It's Christmas. Hmm, Interesting. That's only once a year, as opposed to people having birthdays every day, and it's different. But yeah, it's I don't know. I don't know why that's like a, a rule thing, especially with something so common that everybody sings. And yeah, because it's like the most common song that I mean. There's different versions of it. I mean, there's like funny ones, and of course, uh, us being you know Latinx, and you know, kind of you know we have the Spanish version, which is kind of cool. Um, we have Los Mañanitas. It's like one of the biggest thing we do for like birthdays. Of course, um, today, you know, we, we did, like, well, a couple of days ago, we did, like, a little birthday thing, and, um, you know, I invited, like, a few people over, I really appreciate them for coming out, because I know with the whole COVID-19 thing, you know, social gatherings, sometimes they gotta be limited, but I know with the restrictions being slowly lifted in some states, you know, like, restaurants are being, like, 25% capacity, but I was glad that most of, like, right, my relatives, you know, came, and, you know, our relatives came, the... I would drive out and, you know, wish me happy birthday. We had cake and everything. So it was awesome. I definitely appreciate them um, for them coming out. Um, another thing, too, before we get into today's episode, um, we do want to mention yesterday uh, we lost a comedy legend. Um, probably most of you probably won't know him because at my age, I'm 35. So <laughs> but um, Carl Reiner, who was a, pretty much a director and comedic writer and also actor, he was one of the pioneers of the Dick Van Dyke show. He just passed away yesterday at the age of 98. You know, condolences to his family, you know, and people that he worked with. You know, big comedian, um, writer. At, I mean, he's done, like, so much when it comes to, like, television and stuff. He's up there with Norman Lear when it comes to, like, pioneers of comedic television. So, you know, like I said, prayers and thoughts to his family and his friends that he works with. Um, today, um... I'm going to get some new stuff out of the way because a big thing today I want to focus on um, with video games slowly coming back. You know, we got PS5 coming back and all that. And the Xbox Series S, apparently, they're going to make a, a less power version of the Xbox Series X called Xbox Series S, which apparently Microsoft announced. Uh, we want to talk about maybe not people of this generation now, but I didn't realize there was a video game crash that happened a long time ago. And you probably wondering, why do we have companies now like Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft, you know, all making video game consoles now? Mm-hmm. But with us growing like in the late 80s, early 90s, we had a lot of game companies. Um, but today, that's why, before we get into that, I do want to put some quick use topics, you know, get out of the way, you know. And one thing I do want to say, I want to thank our sponsor, Anchor. You know, basically, Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Um, they give you all the creation tools and editing tools you need to create your podcast and they help you, you know, distribute to other platforms such as Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Um, you can monetize your episodes and, you know, add like little things like music and all that stuff on there, like sound effects. 
you know, you can get listenership. Like they don't require, you know, to have a certain amount of listeners. They sponsor you anyway. That's kind of cool. These are usually going to use your tablet or your phone. Um, another thing too, we want to mention, we do have a store on Teespring. Um, you go to teespring.com slash store slash talk and pop. We got t-shirts, we got tank tops, we got hoodies, especially tank tops would be useful right now because it's summer. Um, we got coffee mugs, um, with the pop not on there. So definitely check that out. Any proceeds from the sales of those merchandise goes to support the podcast. And believe me, I'm planning on designing more stuff soon. We'll probably get a Beagle shirt and a Fonchai shirt coming soon. I got to work on preliminary designs. Also, we also want to announce that we're also available on iHeartRadio. So you can check us out on iHeartRadio.com. So we're on there. We just got announced. Got the email back a few days ago. So we now officially part of the iHeartRadio community. Um, right now, we are now doing our video podcasting as well. So you can catch us on YouTube or Twitch. Um, you can go catch us on YouTube. You look for the page, The Franchise. And like I said, when we do a recording of our podcast, you'll get the video live as well. So definitely check that out. Support us on there as well. Facebook page is facebook.com slash pop. We do links to the videos and audio of the podcast from there. You can post questions, you know, post any, you know, comments or anything. Like I said, we will appreciate feedback. Um, you can follow the podcast at its official Twitter at pop talking, all one word, small cap. You can post stuff on there like topics that you want me and Biko to discuss in the future. Or you just want to say, hey, you know, how you doing? I'm also a Twitch streamer. I'm on Twitch, twitch.tv slash franchise 65 I do casual gameplays. I'm recently at doing a pet casual play of Persona 5 and Double Royale. Even though I beat the game, I'm doing another romantic route path. And right now, I'm also doing the visual novel game by Red Entertainment called Our World Has Ended. I just did a two-hour stream yesterday. You can check that out right now on twitch.tv slash franchise685. Make sure to hit that follow button. That way, you get notifications when we go on. Same thing with the YouTube channel. Make sure you have that notification button open so next... That way you guys are aware where we're going to be appearing next. And for that, let's go quick some news headlines. Um, the biggest thing, too, was, um, of course, Disney Plus is getting made an announcement that they're getting a lot of the X-Men movies in soon. A lot of the licensing rights of the X-Men films are slowly coming to Disney Plus. I think so far it's a Days of Future Past and Apocalypse so far coming over. Um, also plans for the other X-Men movies as well. Um, so far they haven't said about Logan and the other films. Um, Mighty Ducks 1 is coming to Disney Plus on Friday. That's going to be joining Hamilton as well. Um, Greatest Showman is also coming to Disney Plus soon. The Peanuts movie is coming to Disney Plus. So they're getting a lot of the Fox assets because they do licensing agreements. Um, right now Mighty Ducks 2 and 3 are still under HBO Max. They still have the rest of those until January 1st of next year. Oh, okay. So right now they'll get the first film on Mighty Ducks, but of course we got the series coming soon. To Disney Plus, that's Milo Estevez is going to be in it. So, we can't wait to see that. Um, and one thing, too, uh, I'm, just like, I'm just going through, like, CBR right now. And just, uh, like, of course, you know, with a lot of um, the cases, like, spiking right now. A lot of movie theaters, you know, they were planning to open, like, mid-next month. A lot of them getting pushed back. Oh, yeah. Uh, for opening or for not? Like opening. Like, you know, they were getting ready to... They were going to do, like, mid-July, but a lot of, like, studios are pushing back on release dates for films because, you know, with the the peak of the cases down south in California, they're, you know, they're pushing back. Like, you know, Tenet was supposed to release, like, what, later next month, but they pushed it to August. Um, Bill and Ted 3 got pushed back as well, and now, like, the movie chains are starting to push back as well. Like, AMC, Cinemarchus, and else are pushing back their their opening date as well and another thing I do want to mention um, 
one thing that I saw like last week was, you know, it's good. It's, people don't realize it's the 10th anniversary of Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Um, it's, to me, it, it's one of the most underrated films. There's even though it didn't do so well in the box office, it guy gained a call following in the mystic video market to the point as you can see on, well, you're not going to see it on audio, but me and Biko have tattoos of the band Sex Bob, so we got matching tattoos. It's one of those films that I enjoy, you know, you had Edgar Wright, who, you know, pretty much, you know, directed, he was known for directing the three um, Cornetto film trilogy with Shaun the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. You know, him taking the concept of, uh, I mean, if you read the graphic novels, the six graphic novels by Brian Lee O'Malley, really good. It's a lot like he's in, he, pretty much, you know, he's Canadian, so he based a lot of his town in Toronto. He lives in Toronto. So there's a lot of video game references, pop culture references in the graphic novel, which is kind of cool. And, you know, taking that and Edgar Wright was able to translate it pretty well into film. He got a really good voice cast, a really good cast for the film. I mean, you had Michael Cera, uh, Elizabeth Weinstead, um, you had um, Mae Whitman, Chris Evans, Jason Schwartzman, Brie Larson. Was, uh, the Colton brother. <coughs> Kieran Culkin was in it as well. It, it was like it was a really legit cast. It was a really good cast, you know. It's just that you know, I think to me it, it didn't get much notoriety because you know it was based on the Canadian graphic novel, so what didn't get as much. I mean, I think they premiered at Comic Con when it first came out, but I don't know if they didn't do much marketing for it or people weren't familiar with the graphic novels. Yeah, I mean. Especially if you don't read graphic novels, uh, I highly suggest. Well, depending on where you live, uh, if you are, if you have access to a library, please, please take advantage. Um, most of the graphic novel novels I've gotten to read over the years, I've been at from a library, and they constantly stock up. And what's great about it is there's familiar properties you can find omnibus collections. You can find. Things that you never would normally come across as if or if you don't have the money to go Buy a book graphic novel because a lot of these are fairly expensive depending on what you're trying to get And if you're trying to start a collection It can get really pricey if you're starting from one and and to wait until they release volumes of certain essential collections And if you want if you're an avid collector or like some people and you want everything that has to be involved in a graphic novel series I highly suggest going to the library that way you can check it out they're fast reads, depending on how your pacing is, but the library is your best friend. I, one of the things that made me sad the most about this COVID is the library being closed. Yeah. Um, and I think during the summer, it's going to be very interesting since a lot of states are, well, at least here, like, oh, they're going to have to close again. Um, Illinois, we don't know as of yet. I, I know we were doing good. Tell. Yeah, we're doing decent, but I think with 4th of July coming up and uh, everything... I want to say with uh, restaurants being open and uh, bars essentially being open as well, that might drive up things. Cause but I think with now with like I was rereading that that pretty much restaurants only allowed twenty five percent capacity. Yeah, and bars are all going to be serving until eleven. So it's there's still some limitations, but I think too with Fourth of July coming, like you said, you can't mandate. It. I saw like not many towns are doing anything. No, very few towns are doing something, and most of them are telling them either. Some of them are trying to make it to the point where you can just see it by your house. If you, like, they'll do it by parks where it's usually near the residential area. So if you live in that area, you better have a good view from your home. So they're trying to figure out ways to do that and probably limit how many people they can allow to park at certain places. Because I was like looking and seeing, you know, like, you know, the West Suburbs. Like, I think it's like a few places that were going to have it. 
Right, but I mean, but still, you guys still got a limit. Yeah, it's still gonna be. You know, it's. I'm not gonna stop anybody from not actually celebrating. Like I don't know. I, and at this point, I think Illinois has been leading the charge as far as what the with the implementation of masks in um, public places and trying to limit access to things, which at first, I think in the beginning, like April and, and May, it was a little tough, but I think going into June, I th- I we've shown the results and um, they're all able to open everything back up. Uh, people got used to wearing them. Like, I don't think there was any- Yeah, I mean, it's a conditioning aspect. So for them to, and we see the results it's given us. So I mean, a lot more than what I can say for other states in the in the United States. But Illinois has been leading the charge, and and I for one feel very hopeful that that's going to be the case, and they can continue this drive um, well into the summer. We will see, I guess, because this could easily spike again. I don't, I don't already have the best hope for people taking care of themselves still but we'll see i mean it's fourth of july coming up and people like to celebrate it in their own ways and if that means gathering a bunch of people together to shoot fireworks and shit hey it's your home uh do what you want and at the end of the day just hope that you guys are taking precaution but at the end of the day do what you want yeah, and then and then of course um they're playing the Ridley Scott Pokemon versus the World like in theaters again once they open up like a tenth anniversary screening, mm-hmm. and then Edgar Wright apparently was on Twitter, claiming that possibly he wants to revisit that world again and possibly in anime form. Um, if that is what he's saying is true, that he's discussing with the writers from the film and Brian Lumelli if they are working together to do it. Hopefully they bring the cast to reprise their characters in voice form. Because that would be kind of cool. Because I think um, with six books, they can actually expand beyond that universe. Like, they can give mm-hmm. more backstory. Because they can, you know, go back, you know, with Scott's, like, high school days. They can go as far back as they can, you know, give something. Like, so, like the graphic novels are so good. I know they released them in color. Which I got, like, the first two volumes. Well, I got the original six. But I got, like, the first two volumes and recolored. And it's like, they're hardcore, but they look really well because he added like more sketches that he was working on the characters. But but kind of cool because there's a lot of backstory, a lot of things that were, they were you know, Edgar Wright tried his best. He and the writers tried their best to fit in the film as much as they can. But I mean, they took a lot of good like scenes from the comic itself. They tried to stay true to the, to the graphic novel because like I said, it's like, it's got a lot of pop culture references, you know, a lot of like... You know, video game references because you know Brian Lee Man loved video games, he loved music, so there's a lot. You know, Scott Pilgrim has a shirt of the Smashing Pumpkins on there, so it's kind of cool. And the name is from uh, by a band called Plum Tree. They made yeah. a song called Scott Pilgrim, so that's what the character's name after the band. That's all Brian Lee Man's favorite band, and we kind of go see that. Like I said, doing an anime form, you can do so much. You can expand beyond the universe. You can do a lot of backstory. Which character, like in anime, they do like a lot of backstories, like how to get to this point. Because in the manga, you know, they can. With manga, you know, manga you know, they have like a week or two to get a, a chapter out. And sometimes they, people like the anime creators are like, hey, um, we're interested to do an episode of this backstory. And you see that a lot of anime, they do a backstory about certain characters. It could see how they got to that point. So that's why, you know, if this is true now, the Edgar Rice saying, you know, hey, um, I want to revisit this world in anime form. I'm more excited to see that. I'm thinking if they do it in anime form... They'll probably be going in on a streaming service like Netflix or like Hulu or depends who picks up the rights to it. Yeah. But that'd be kind of cool. I can't wait for that um, as well. And, you know, I'm going to try and see what else, like, before we get on the video game history, I'm trying to see what else I pulled up. 
Oh yeah, this one thing I do want to mention. Uh, apparently, um, so far, like Yo Joshka had the Lord of the Rings cast come out. And, you know, he's doing his little reunions and stuff. Right now, they're doing it for charity and stuff. He got most of the Lord of Rings cast on all the time. He had like most of the principal cast on there. Even John Reese Davis was on there, and they, they were like recreating certain scenes from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Even Liv Tyler was on there. Sean Bean, of course. Uh, Ian McKellen. Um, Loved on the first part where you know, for like Elijah Wood said, Yo, light, and then of course, uh, again, I was like, A wizard is not late, but well, I mean, Frodo Baggins, <laughs> and he kind of flubbed his lines, and everyone started laughing, they were all having a good time. It was kind of cool. Sean Bean doing his famous line, You should be can just, just walk into Moldova. He's like, And that's one of his famous lines, but Tyler doing like, you know, her characters, like it was kind of cool. He, uh, even Carl Urban, um, had the helmet, like most of them had like props from the film, it was kind of cool. And I do mention on um, Blessed Past Weekend 2, The Boys Season 2 got announced. Oh. They did, they did announce, like, I think um, they did a little, little live stream or something, and was, like, the cast was there, and they were they previewed the trailer for Season 2 of The Boys, and it says September 4th. Of this year? Of this year will be Season 2 of The Boys. Can't wait for that show. That show was awesome. It was really good. I mean, I'm, to the point, I want to read the, the comic itself, because it looks really interesting. And it's, they've done a phenomenal job on it. And also, too... With being the last day of June, of course my birthday, but next month brings like the world of anime. So I do want to do a quick like, anime preview of what's to come once everything starts coming together. Because a lot of like animes are coming back from the COVID hiatus and some new ones are premiering as well. Um, and of course there were some animes that are coming back like One Piece just got back. I have to catch up on that now. They just kind of hey, of course book on um, Digimon Reboot. These are my adventure reboot. Just premiered the last episode last week. Um, one thing I do want to recommend. So, I mean, there's a lot of animes out there right now. But the one I do recommend um, was one of the new animes that came out this past spring. Which, you know, was, to me, it's, I wish there was more episodes on it. It's kind of a street topic. It's called Art. A-R-T-E. And pretty much it takes place in the Renaissance. During the Italian Renaissance, you know, with art and stuff. So it follows this girl named Arte. She's born in a noble family. Young girl. And pretty much, she don't care she's a noble. And she wants to pursue a career in art. But of course, being a female, it's like, it's looked down upon. Yeah. Of course, in those times. And she ends up, like, you know, finding a teacher. Because you got to get a teacher support and sponsor you, teach you everything. He finds this guy who was reluctant at first to take her in. But I was fascinated by her determination, her grit to, you know, work hard just so she can, you know, brush up her talents and pretty much share her art style to the world. It's really good. I think it was about 12, 13 episodes because I'm Funimation right now. But it's kind of cool because it gives you a depth because there's not that many manga based in those kind of periods in the Renaissance. Like I said, it takes place in Florence, Italy, and they were one point the character goes to Venice later on. But it's really cool because you see, like, you know... Her determination and how she's criticized just because she's a girl. Mm. And she's looked at, oh, because she's a girl, she can't make it in the art world because most of the men do almost a lot of the tasks. But it, by her work and determination, she shares respect about everyone. So it's really good. I do definitely recommend you guys. That's my anime recommendation of the week is art. You can catch it on Funimation now on the streaming service. But definitely check that out. If you're into like art and renaissance, I mean, it, it, the colors and the animation style is really great. I mean, the characters are phenomenal, and I think you guys will enjoy it if you're into, like, the Renaissance. If you're an art student as well, I'd definitely recommend that. All right, and uh, we'll do a little wrestling before we jump on the video games. Um, 
course, the biggest thing um, I, I saw last night was the Road to Fighter Fest. Um, you know, AEW decided this year, um, instead of doing Fighter Fest as a pay-per-view, they decided to do it for two nights on TNT. So people that have cable will be able to see it. So they're going to split between the two nights. It'll be tomorrow night. Um, they're going to have a few matches, and they'll have, like, the bigger... They did the little Road to Fighter Fest number one. So it gives you, like, a backstory of certain matches. Um, the biggest one, of course, is um, Heyman Page and Kenny Omega taking on the best friends, Chuck Taylor and Trent, Trent Beretta. So we get to see that match. Um, of course, um, Cody defending the TNT Championship, the American Nightmare, taking on Jake Hager. That was kind of cool, like the promos for that as well, because they kind of, you know, even though they were they both were in the same company at that one point, but it was more like real, like the way they were doing it. Because hmm. it's, you know, they're being more meta as it is. And then, of course, you have um, Hikaru Shida taking up Penelope Ford. She's defending the AEW Women's Championship. Um, there's some other matches as well. Private Party's going to be involved as well. Um, it looks... Great for the first first week. Um, of course, the next week the big question here right now is John Moxley. He's supposed to defend his AEW championship against um, Brian Cage, but of course, you know, recently so far this past week, WWE and their staff have few of them were tested positive for COVID nineteen, and of course they had Raw last night, and you know how they were allowing the trainees and they, their trainees were allowed to bring their family and friends. Like they, were like, they, were, they were letting them wear masks. Because well, they should. They which respect, which like, apparently on Twitter, I read the Twitter thing. People were happy they did that because honestly, it and what's kind of cool, like they have masks, but it's kind of cool that someone had the DS logo on there. So it's kind of cool. They were like decorated ones, so it's kind of cool. Um, and of course, John Moxie and Renee Young, of course, they're married. Um, she got diagnosed with COVID nineteen. John Moxie got tested with COVID nineteen as well. So right now, that's up in the air if he's going to do the match or not. So right now he was pulled for like a couple of weeks of dynamite just for precautions. But one thing I find out about AEW versus um, WWE is like AEW does more strict testing. Mm. They even do blood tests as well. They test everybody, not just temperature, but they also do blood work as well. Just to make sure they're okay. But, I mean, we'll see how it happens. Like right now they haven't said anything about week two, but so far they were trying like week one. And of course, um... WWE decided with the NXT brand, they're also doing the Great American, they're reviving the Great American Bash. And they're going to do it for two nights as well, two Wednesday nights. To compete against AEW, because right now we're at the Wednesday Night Wars. So, they're doing that as well. Um, so, I mean, other than that, of course, with the whole, like last week we talked about the Speaking Out mo uh, movement and everything right now. Apparently there's going to be an announcement that they're going to announce about the NXT brand. Because I guess it, the whole speaking out came from over there, from the UK, about the stories and stuff. And most of their town were, like, singled out. Hmm. So I have to wait and see what WWE is going to say about tomorrow. It says major announcement about NXT case from KSHICs.com. There's some concern about the future of the brand, given WWE's shifting priorities in the speaking out movement. But a couple sources indicate this won't be bad news. So we have to wait and see what, what what's going to happen. Um, and, of course, R-Truth is the 24-7 champion again. <laughs> um... He apparently won it again. It's the number of times. Ever since the 24-7 championship, it was pretty much like a rehash of the hardcore championship. The only difference is no hardcore. The only difference is you can do it anytime as long as you have a ref. And right now, R-Truth, again, won again. And he's like, I don't know how many times. He's the 37-time 24-7 champion. 
So congratulations to our troop. Man, his music is phenomenal too, man. Yeah. I saw, like, they didn't interview him. They asked him, like, does Vince listen to your music? I'm like, yeah. Like, Vince lets him be creative and stuff. Like, he's one of, like, Vince, like, has him at high regard. Like, he helps out with, like, the brand and stuff as well, but, but also our troopers' music and creativity as well. And I just read right now this article too, and before we go on the video game history, um, the Edge wrote his own, uh, Edge, when his return, he wrote all his promos himself. So that was all him. Like any promo he did, it was all him. So that's kind of cool. That's kind of interesting. Uh, hopefully he's recovering from a tricep injury, which kind of sucks. Um, and hopefully he recovers soon, and we'll see him soon. Alrighty, um, and all one thing we do want to mention before, well, it kind of is related to video games, but apparently Trump's official Twitch channel got suspended. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which I'm not surprised if, uh, like I was saying yesterday, that if that's really what, I'm sure, when I, I saw it when it popped up on Reddit, and then the first thing somebody commented was, oh, damn it, I thought this is, they suspended his Twitter, but it's still nice to see, though. And I'm just like, yeah, exactly. It's like, Twitch, okay, I doubt he even uses it. It's probably mainly just to stream whatever their speeches are when they post up, post them up or, like, what, maybe his rallies. But, like, what the fuck? Like, I, it, somebody needs to shut down his Twitter, but at the same time, it's that's technically against free speech, and here we yeah. go. But, I mean, he's also not using the platform for positivity, nonetheless. But it's Twitter's a fucking dumpster fire as it is. So I, I don't know, I, I'm very, I guess one more off the books and with Facebook constantly losing yeah. um, companies that uh, probably invest a lot in their marketing on the on the Facebook ads platform, they they are pulling out, uh, I think I even see Nike pull out. Oh yeah, Coca-Cola as well uh, too. Yeah, pull out social media companies that just keep dropping like flies and they lost Procter & Gamble too, which that's over what how many 500 brands that they represent oh yeah or that they own they own yeah so for a whole year they're already saying a whole year so not just as that that's also bleeding into youtube and and if you don't think that's gonna affect the content being produced or who your favorite uh youtubers are that's a big deal because they lose monetization if if uh if there's nobody paying for ads, ad space or ad time on your videos, and uh, that's a big shot in the pockets, especially for something as big as Facebook, where they've been really driving home to be the world's fucking billboard spot for your advertisements or for your company itself, mm -hmm. and and Facebook is already getting a lot of backfire with that and propagating hate speech and things like that. So it's just we're in a very specific time in, in an adolescence time of the internet to where we didn't know where this was going and still don't know where it's going but when it comes to platforms like this we're not this is not going to be the end we're going to continue to see i mean yeah i mean now hollywood is stop. you know they're taking the steps forward by you know of course the rule episodes of shows that you know depicting you know oh but it's, but it's like yeah that's me that's like whatever i understand why but the same time to me it's like you're pretty much erasing that it never happened mm -hmm. honestly take a page from warner brothers when they released those cartoons that you know they picked stereotypes but at least they had a disclaimer because you take basically taking those episodes off me and you're erasing history 
But so what's gonna happen is that if these streams are still going on in future generations, how do you know these episodes happen? They're not going to. They're not gonna know because you know you're taking it away. You're not. You're pretty much denying that these actually happen. And half the time, it's not really for. They're not. There's not. They're not providing a context. They're just taking it out because if they, if just one little group of executives think it's gonna be a bad. Call they're trying to save face, basically. And, and I get. I under, I understand for a fact why they're doing it, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's like. I understand they were written before now, before 2020, but at the same time, it's like you're saying it's, because I'm sometimes, you know, it's for community purposes, but at the same time, it's almost trying to get people to pay attention. Are you going to take off redneck shit because it's offensive to white people? That's funny how they haven't done that, but yet you're going to... Like the ranch, that show the ranch and just get taken down for propagating southern... Southern well, it's everybody takes place in Wyoming or something like that. Right, but it doesn't matter. Like it's it's still like a conservative right, like kind of show. Uh, Tim Allen's shit, his show that two man in the whatever, man in the middle. Last I, man I, standing, a call. Yeah, last, last man standing. Stand, right, yeah. he was. There was like a bleeding heart conservative in that aspect, but he's like. It just honestly, it's, all gonna, like to me, honest with you, I understand so what they're doing, but at the same time, it's like. Just put a disclaimer on there. That's all you have to do. I think the reason why you're this episode is people. Just, just to, just to, I think, don't get me wrong. Yeah, they're, they're racist, they're, but I think it was a way yes. of showing, just to get people's attention, to say, hey, don't forget this was going on. This happened. This happened, but this happened. That's why it was a way to get people to wake up and people talk. I think it was to bring the conversation, but now it's like, oh, we're going to take that. It's not a conversation anymore. Okay. Nobody wants to have conversations anymore. You're automatically... And that's problem. I think that's that community. I think they took away a few episodes as yeah, well. They took away the D and D one too. The D and D one, because even though the character's dark elf, honestly, I don't know why he's a dark elf. Come on, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's it's cancel culture. Cancel culture is just completely bled through into everything. And it's like you're and not helping. Surprised. The best thing to do is explain. Not. It's yeah. It's simple. Just oh, we're gonna take the episode away. But you're not teaching. You gotta explain why it's offensive. You gotta explain why. That's why it's good to have a disclaimer on there saying, before you watch this episode, just put a message saying, you know, this is the perfect time is to show us, like, you know, a way to show how other cultures are being predict are being portrayed. This does not reflect the views of the creators. It was made to, it's a commentary, basically. That's all you have to put. I mean, The Office, you know, they edited, you know, the Black people, like, you know, the Christmas, Dwight Christmas episode, they edited it. Because at the one point, you know... Dwight was trying to show other cultures in Christmas, and of course, Black Pete and Black Pete's from like the, I believe the European Christmas. I forget what country was it. Where, yeah, he's blackface, but he's he's like Santa's helper. But of course, at that time, I don't know what country it is, but um, it's usually person wearing black makeup. And of course, this one scene when Dwight had a call off. I think Oscar made it up, pointed it out about it. And he had a call off one of the warehouse guys. He was about to walk in with the makeup, and he, as soon as he got the technical, he walked away. But it's like, okay, something like that, it makes sense. But you got to think about that was in different cultures. It's like, we're not the only culture that did that. Other cultures did the same thing. But they were, like, the way other cultures did it, it is a way of showing a positive, but sometimes, you know, with, uh, with you know, cancer culture, it's been seen that different way. But, I mean, to me, the best solution was, is, like, make a disclaimer saying, you know, this is not... This was portrayed as a way of, of social commentary. 
it's a reflection of reflection of what happened years ago but the, it came out and we're showing to, to keep that you know <laughs> but honestly it's like okay we're gonna take episode away i understand you're trying to like the producers and students are trying to say face but at the same time it's like you're erasing history you're 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 erasing critical thinking that's what it is you're erasing it so where's you still honestly they could have used those up as a teaching tool you're basically taking it away what, what, listening to like these other podcasts and they kept saying the same thing have the tough conversations teach learn even like the, they, these are prime examples to learn why it's offensive why it's straight away but why the creators just decide to do it why the actors decide to do it they probably want people to, to talk about it to discuss it why it's offensive that way it leads to more discussions but it's like the students say, you know what with this going on let's pretty much get rid of it you know it's like you're basically brushing away things that already happened it's so simple as like clicking a button or writing a code to release it but at the same time it's like you're denying the history yeah like you know i know we were supposed to go i'm going way off talking about this is something i don't know it's to me like i understand you know the movement right now is awesome right now black life movement they're, they're, they're just making progress but it's like hollywood is like i said they're trying to save face it's like there's a lot of films out there, like Gone with the Wind, a film that was made like in the 30s, 40s, based on the Civil War. And it's based on books. It's like literature had that back then. And it's still being read. So you're going to go back in the books and black out everything? You're basically erasing history. Yeah, in school we... Our books were up to date at that time because of funding and stuff. They always show some of the American history, but at the same time, you're like, you have to go somewhere else. It's the whole thing about having these episodes removed. It's like you're, like like you were saying, Biko, like pretty much taking away discussions, you know, taking away a possibility of researching other things. Yeah, I mean. But to me, I understand why they had to remove them. But at the same time, it's like you're not, you're taking away the teaching tools for it. Why it was offensive. You know? Why? You know? Get the conversation going. Why? I know Donald Faison said, you know, when they talk about that, especially that Scrubs episode, you know, he understands why they pulled it. Like, Bill Lawrence understands why he decided he wanted to pull the episodes. But, I understand. But at the same time, it's like, they could be used as teaching. Mm -hmm. Keep the conversation going. Use those as examples. And find out why they did, they did what they did. The probably did is a political social commentary. And it's funny because growing up with cartoons and stuff, I didn't know those were stereotypes. They never taught us that in school. We had to learn somewhere else. Just like anything else. Why well, only stay to one source, unfortunately, people, even with the internet being so vast... Mm-hmm. Is that they, and if you stop the conversation, that's the problem, is that you automatically get denounced and even if it is look man we're just in a world of good ideas bad ideas and even then you have to make the the judgment call whether it's good or bad there's always going to unfortunately be dumbasses and there's always going to be people who are too smart for their own good and they don't bother to just listen and critically think from then on you just decide what you want to keep in your brain and what you think is true to your beliefs and and that's it that's what freedom of speech is supposed to be I, yes, hate speech is wrong. Yes, stereotypical caricatures used in media from the back then and including now 
is 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 it wrong? I don't know. But is it right? I don't know either. Um, even when we were grow when we grew up, we were watching a bunch of shit. Like, yeah, should we have watched it at such an early age? No. But my family also didn't spend a lot of time really caring about that shit. Like, you, if you, damned if you do, damned if you don't. If they mm -hmm. weren't gonna, if they stopped us from doing that, it doesn't mean we weren't going to get to ex get exposed later on. Like, fuck. Like, I, I knew curse words from, like, seven or eight years old, and I, <laughs> it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter what we what we did. I Even to this day, like, it could be whatever. I feel like the things we pick and choose to get mad about is a sign of, I, I think it's a sign of, uh being comfortable mm -hmm. especially when it's stuff like this like man if do we like if we'll take the looney tunes like fuck speeding gonzalez like this is what they thought a mexican was a short mouse with an accent super fast but shit i thought he was a funny character knowing that he was being our stereotypical dude but he also could remind you of your uncle so it's like you, the people who are getting like outraged at this are not, are not the people who should be outraged at it. It's like, like Elmer Fudd having a speech impediment, or like yeah, or like, like you know, or Daffy Duck having a lisp. Yeah, it was pretty intense, but it was also awareness that hey, even like animals, or even it was just showing you know they can have you know people are born different. That's what it was. We're all different. We I mean, the comedy at that time with Looney Tunes, like even Disney had like a few. Things. They still do. They still had a few things. <laughs> they but still it's do. like... Don't worry. But, like I said, it's like... Okay, I know it's simple as just taking episodes away. But it's like... Like I said, like my thing is you're taking away history. You're taking away the conversation. A one piece. Ever station. I love for the fact that right now, like a lot of these activists are showing like... They're giving recommendations on how to read like the literature and stuff. They could have used these as like examples as well. But now you took that away. They could have used these episodes as a teaching tool. Mm-hmm. Well, you took it away because you're trying to take, you're trying to deny, like, the conversation. It's, it's, uh, um, my friend Ivan was talking about, a, uh, when we were on a bike ride a couple days ago with me and our, him and Armando, and we all have various different opinions, um, which is fine, that's the whole point, this is why you should always keep a conversation going, but, um, you, he was kind of relating it to, like, book burning, kind of like Fahrenheit, uh, 451, if you, by Ray Bradbury, if you never read that, um, Excellent book. They, they, I think hopefully it still make you read that in high school because I think it's an important novel. But mm -hmm. it's it's akin to that. It's a book burning. I mean, there it's like a dystopian future where they burn all books and only let you read certain things. And it's if it's like and he comes across a book, ah, I'm blanking on the details. But essentially, you're 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 using it as a form of book burning. And Armando came at it from a different perspective, which is fine. He tends to be a little more. Um, he he has a different view on on certain things and and i respect that like i i kind of lean towards ivan side because yes it's like we shouldn't i mean mein Kampf is still a, a bestseller and that's hitler's like fucking magnum opus of like why anti-semitism and shit like that like about everybody he's like no fucking aryans are the the master race and like no we that's you can still get that on amazon you can still find um Fucking who who did a rating on it? Uh, George Orwell did like a an annotation on it back in the day when he first read it, and it's just like I have another friend too who had mentioned. He's like, "Have you read that book?" And I was like, "You know what? I've been meaning to read." It. He's like, "Yes, the views in there are fucking ridiculous," but he he wrote a hell of a book. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's the separation of artists and art, but nonetheless. 
we all know Hitler was wrong. We all know he was a terrible person. And there's people there outside who are still denying that the Holocaust didn't happen. And we still have people living still for who suffered through those atrocities. And you're going to tell me it wasn't real, but here we are. But when you, when you burn stuff like this or you put it down, you completely ignore it. Now there's just going to be blips and shows. And, and now it's just like, what are we teaching kids now? Or, oh, if you don't like it, it's cool. We'll just pull it off. Yeah. We, we know Hollywood's not doing this because they're trying to be all high mind. They're doing this because they know it pisses the audience off. And it's pissing the silent, the, the, the minority of people who are getting bothered by this, uh, who are propagating cancel culture. And at the end of the day, dude, what you can do is stop fucking watching it. Yeah. At the end of the day, you don't, there's a billion other things you can watch on Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. And you only chose to focus. I'm not saying it's wrong. I get it. But damn, you need to educate yourself. And one form of education is you're going to have to watch these things that make you uncomfortable. You have to. That's what's called being. That's what's called growth and development. Mm-hmm. It's being comfortable with the uncomfortable, and you have to fucking. That's how you grow and understand people. I mean, Daryl Davis didn't convert people from the KKK into understanding that we're all just human beings. But I, without without fucking just saying no, they're all white supremacists are bad. No, he sat no, down he and listened to them. And he listened. listened. He's like, well, I'm a black man. Talk, sit down with me and have a conversation. What do I make you uncomfortable with? And he's converted, I think he said more than... It's like 200, like 200 yeah, it's something like members. Amazing. And like, I saw his TED Talk. Where's the, where's the movie on him? Dude, that TED Talk I amazing. saw on YouTube was amazing. Definitely, guys, check that out. It's Darryl the one Davis. he did in Naperville. It's the TED Talk in Naperville. I was like, like a few years back. He talks about his story. And he says, one thing, yeah, the one thing to do in any conversation is just sit down and listen. You give your views, but listen. That's the one thing he, he said of the whole thing. Yeah, this guy's like the other guy he talked to was one of the headmasters of the KKK, but he listened to him. Mm-hmm. He went to his rallies. It's like, and they shared like a drink afterwards. It's like he, they just listened to the point that after that, he ended up like pretty much gave him his uniform. You're telling after two like that's two hundred people is no laugh. Then I saw this one guy though. who was this one TED talk I saw from like years back. He was a former, he was part of the Aryan Brotherhood, and he got out of himself. He made the choice to get away from it. He made that choice. He made that decision. Mm-hmm. Because he realized after so long that it was wrong. Yeah, but it takes right. people time to learn. That's the biggest thing is education. It's the biggest key. Learning is the key. Knowledge is power. That role's always going to be the... But that, that that's to me that's like, yeah, I understand why I don't want to take episode, but at the same time to me it's like you're denying history. Mm-hmm. You're denying teaching. Because you can have a college course on pop I'm surprised there's not even college courses on pop culture where There probably is. There probably is, yeah. but they could have used that as a teaching tool. Why? They could have had a lesson why it was as offensive. Why they pulled it and why the actors went through it. Because you gotta hear it from their perspective as well. Yeah. I mean And their yeah. intention why they did it. But we're not going to know. We'll never know anymore. We'll never know because we don't control that. And it's up to... But like I mentioned, I, the, these, the the network owners, whoever runs the executives, they did this not because they wanted to, because they pleased, they wanted to please the people who were outraged with stuff or start nitpicking things. And it's like, fuck, man. This, there's got to be some sort of boundaries that need to be set when it comes to this stuff. Um, especially cancel, cancel culture. It's just one... It's it's its own toxicity too, because it's like, well, there's no path to redemption. There's nothing, and some things are just too. Yeah, you can't be redeemed, but like, 
for stuff like that at the end of the day either people forgot about or it is what it is in this new cycle days like is this really affecting your life and that I, much and then one thing before we get on to like the big topic at hand for the rest of the podcast uh which is off the game crash history um the nba announced in collaboration with the nba players they're gonna they're gonna paint black lives matters in the courts when, yeah. when, when they play at disney which to me that's you know great it's really good because he gets the message out there you know being at the time where sports are slowly coming back this is a good way to get the message out as well brings more awareness and you talk about the nba which you know predominantly most of the athletes are african-american so it's like and also other countries as well, because it's like, it's cool that, you know, even the leagues, like the Premier League, Bundesliga, España, like all those leagues were helping us, uh, showing their support as well. Mm-hmm. It's like, why do you think FIFA all these years had the government thing on saying no to racism? They had a campaign for years. Every game you go to, they have signs. It's like, it's funny how they're doing more than what the other leagues did. Well, they've dealt with a lot of racism. They dealt with a lot of it. The scope of soccer and the amount of diversity in each team. And, and it's sad that they have to hear from fans, let alone other players too, you know, who all come from different backgrounds. And some, some more than others, feel that they need to bring in their values or whatever their, their perspective on that could be somewhat racist onto the pitch. And it's and there's no place for that on sports. No. There's just no place for racism in sports. It's ridiculous. It's all about sportsmanship and handling yourself with class and enjoying the game you, you play the most. There's no sense of that. And, and, and especially it just it seems like it happens a lot in soccer. A lot more in soccer than, than what I'm aware of uh, that I've seen throughout the years. I mean, uh, I can think of Mario Batali. Uh, Balotelli would constantly in the Italian leagues when he would play for Inter and AC that fucking he would get so much like people throwing bananas at him on the field like fucking like like it's a fucking circus like it's, it's just ridiculous but I mean we can badger this thing for eight days it's just um, bad ideas guys we need to leave them behind and it's just the world is a mix it's a mixing bowl and if people still want to hold on to uh, this superiority complex, just just know that there's more good than bad people in this world. Just the bad ones have the loudest voices because that's what makes uh, the media click. That's what helps them get money. And so that's why they focus. Just look and try to do your best helping the community around you and try to inform your peop- your friends who may have you know some racial prejudice or whatnot. Try to help them out of their ways. but. You know, take a book, uh, a page out of Daryl Davis's book, and just try to have a conversation and listen. That's the best you can do. And if it escalates, you know, do your best to try to de-escalate. But at the end of the day, we're all humans are all the same. Humans are all the same. It's just these bad ideas that they want to, you know, you want to hold on to. It's it's just you need to educate yourself. Really, read a book, not a not a Facebook timeline. Read a book. All right, so we're going to take a quick break so we can put our ad right there. And right now when we come back, we're going to go ahead and talk about video games for the next half of the podcast. Don't go, so don't go away.
Hey, it's the franchise from Talking Pop with the franchise of Biko. Just letting you know, we have a storefront. It's teespring.com slash Talking Pop. We got shirts. We got tank tops for men, women, kids. We also got hoodies and sweatshirts. Um, we actually have coffee mugs, and we have an iPhone case and a Samsung case with the Popstronaut logo on there. Also, we have stickers, so you can put on your locker, on your laptop, wherever you want to put those stickers on there. So right now, if you go to teespring.com slash TalkingPop, and when you go to check out, use the promo code TalkPop and save $5 on your order. Support the podcast. As always, geek on and take care. Alrighty, and we're back. Um, so pretty much for my birthday, I decided... I don't know, we were, we were, I was having this conversation with our Uncle Sal, um, we were talking about the video game crash, and it got to the point that, you know, everyone was more interested about it, and, you know, what my perspective of it is, even though I was born two years after the crash, but I read this book, um, called Game Over, um, Power Up the Rise of Video Game, the Japanese video game market, because think about it, and I said, you know what, that's kind of an interesting topic, and I know it's probably not, that used to get talked about a lot, but now, you know, as the years go by, it's starting to get little by little, you know, forgotten, because now we just have three game development companies, but back in the day, we had so many video game companies, and it's kind of cool right now to educate this new generation, you know, what happened. So I just pulled up a couple, like, articles, like I said, we're going to start... You know, with the whole, I, I pulled from Wikipedia, and it, I pulled like the history of Nintendo and Sega, but I want to talk about the, what the game crash was. But before we get to the game crash, of course, you know, you had a lot of companies, you know, before 1983, you had Atari, you had ColecoVision, um, and Television, um, Magnavox, um, yeah, Commodore 64, yeah, all these companies. Commodore was more like the whole PC market, because I mean, PCs at that time, they were still pretty basic. But you had in the video game industry, you had, you know, like I said, you had Atari. Atari was the big one out there. And of course, you know, Atari being the, you know, one of the biggest game companies in, you know, in the U.S. at the time. Um, they were doing well. They were, you know, they had Activision as well. They were another game company. And of course, you know, Water Communications on Atari. So it's like, they had a lot of games like Pitfall and everything on that. And what happened was, you know, like arcades like basically arcades were a thing I mean nowadays you don't see arcades around here anymore but they were pretty common back in the day even bars had video game like cabinets I mean they had like those cocktail seating games where you know it was a table and basically it was two screens like a monitor built into the table and you just play and they had like a, uh, like a little plexiglass type of covering so you can have your drink right there while you're playing a game yeah it was great I mean you have Pac-Man you had Namco you had Pac-Man Miss Pac-Man and you know, they were doing well. I mean, they were making money, you know. And a lot of times it was like teenagers that were going because there was no home console. And, of course, that's why it's hard to try to bring the best, to bring that same feel of the arcades to homes. And, then you know, Ralph Bayer, you know, who's pretty much credited as the pioneer of the video games, you know, with the Magnavox Odyssey, brought the concept of Pong to the home market. And then, of course, there's been so many versions of Pong. And, of course, Atari decided to come in and make their own version. But they also started making games as well. Like, you know, they had so many in you know, it was doing well, and the growth was really good, and uh, of course, you know, the problem was with that was the market, you know, going into 1983, it was like pretty much, you know, 
a lot of companies like Odyssey, Intellivision, ColecoVision, Atari, and Vertrex. There was a lot of game companies. And, and the funny thing is, a lot of these companies were selling on, on, on their, each other's system, so they were all taking turns. Because you can get like an Intellivision version of the same game that you got on Atari. So it was like back and forth. Um, and of course, Atari 2600 had the, like, the largest library, according to our Wikipedia, they had the largest library of games produced by third-party developers. In 1982, analysts noticed trends of saturation mentioned that a mild new software company will only allow for a few big hits. Researchers had too much floor space for systems and the price drops for home computers could result in this shakeup. But of course, you know, like I said, there was a lot of, like, you know, Atari had Space Invaders in 1980. That was one of the biggest things, like Taito. So there were, well, I mean, Taito, like, there was some video game development in Japan itself, but there was, like, not a lot of, like, big developers at that time. So, um, a lot of it was through licensing and you know some were made in-house but some were licensed i mean our, like i said the best thing to do was to go to arcade because like consoles back in the day were really pricey they were really expensive you know it was and of course um i'm like based on the cause and factors of the video game crash because i was looking here and it says here revenues peaked around 3.2 billion in 1983 that fell to about 100 million by 1985 97 drop okay. But with that was, and I pulled up like the Wikipedia has, like I said, the console market was so flooded because you had so many consoles and you had so many marketing campaigns that it kept throwing everybody off. Like, like if your buddies had like the Atari, like some people would get, oh, I want to get the television because they had these many games. Like there were so many game companies that didn't know what to deal with it. Like the retailers didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And of course, publishing control was the biggest thing because, you know, and the term like, you know, royalties and all that stuff and it says here um prior to 1982 only a few third-party developers besides activision making games for the atari video computer system uh video game console system these include magic games by apollo coleco parker Brothers, cbs video games and mattel by 1982 activision success led numerous other companies to join them however activision's founder david crane observed that several of these companies were supported by venture capitalists attempting to emulate the success of activision not only for the atari BCS, but other consoles, and rely on inexperienced computer programmers without the experience that Crane and the team had made these games were of poor quality. That's what kind of hurt them too, was, you know, publishing control and also the quality wasn't as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the games today, like the targets back then compared to today's graphics, at that time, that's where, that were the next-gen graphics at that time in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. But, of course, you know, a lot of markets were saying there was going to be a crash. And, of course, the computer market was a big thing, too. I mean, this is one of the other causes was the, you know, home computers. Because at that time, computers were, like, big, bulky, they were mostly used for work. But, of course, you know, um, Commodore decided to go into it and decide to uh, do something as well and create, like, you know, their own, like, computer system. It says here, Atari had their own computers as well. The Atari 400 to the Atari 800. IBM introduced the IBM 51 PC for... Price was about 1565 base price, but in today's market, it would have been equivalent to 4101 And of course, the computer researchers use as computers, so computers start making into the homes as well. And of course, you know, that was another market to catch in, was the whole PC market. Because like I said, PCs, you know, the only time you see a PC at that time was only if you worked in an office. But now these companies are starting to branch out, like Apple and all of them start, you know, try to make it like a home computer. And 
you know, that was like another industry that was attacking the video game industry as well. Because now it's like, oh, you can play games on computer too. And of course, you know, they had like floppy disks and, you know, cassettes. Instead of ROM cartridges, they ended up using those. It's pretty much like Atari, all them, they used the cartridge base. Yeah. And the controllers were like crazy because the Atari controller was like a joystick and a little button inside. Um, and that kind of hurt them as well. Um, and of course, you know, the biggest thing that, of course, we had to deal with the economy was inflation. Which we will see again later. Which we'll probably see again, like, I guess the dollar went up. It says that the U.S. game industry lobbied in Washington, D.C. for a smaller $1 coin. Closer to the size of a quarter, arguing that inflation, which had reduced the quarter's spending power by a third in the early 1980s, was making it difficult to prosper. During the 1970s, the dollar coin is in use was the Eisenhower dollar, a large coin impractical. Impractical for vending machines. This is me, Anthony Dollar, which was introduced in 1979. Its size fit the video game manufacturer's demands, but it was a failure with the general public. I'm not even coin similar to the quarter, but well, it's the most common complaints. Um, arcade machines in Japan have standardized the use of, of 100 yen coins, roughly about a dollar, which industry veteran Mark Center proposes a reason for the stability of a game industry in Japan. So, I mean, the game industry in Japan at that time was still viable. It was just here in the U.S. that crashed. Because I guess they were trying to make, like, the arcade cabinets, they were trying to kind of, companies they were trying to make more from the arcades, because that's, besides home console sales, they were relying more from the arcades. Well, because, yeah, they, because the, dem, what, the demographics of a lot of teenagers, Like, adults, teenagers, young adults, yeah. Who were probably working, and... And then the home console was more towards kids. Yeah. So they were trying to get the markets on all three fronts. And, of course, you know... When movies start coming out, and you know they decide, you know what, let's start making movies based on games. There's something there, guys. Um, of course, Pac-Man being one of them, it's it, it just pretty well on twenty six hundred. But this, uh, you know, twenty um, Atari decided to do the thing was pretty much, you know, decided you know, with licensing, they decided to make video games based on movies. And of course, a big thing at that time in the early eighties was E.T. the extraterrestrial the film directed by Steven Spielberg. And of course, um, that pretty much kind of it was released in 1982. And going back to the, I pull up the Atari that game. Pretty much, people are saying that was one of the factors why the game crash happened. Um, pretty much, this is from this is the article straight from Wikipedia. Pretty much. It was designed by Howard Scott Warshaw. It was released in 1982 for the Atari 2600, ET game. Warshaw intended the game to be an innovative adaptation of the film, and Atari thought it would achieve high sales figures based on an enormous international box office success of the film. Negotiations to secure rights to the game ended in late July 1982, giving Warshaw only five and a half weeks to develop the game for the 1982 Christmas season. The final release was critically panned, with nearly aspect of the game facing heavy criticism. ET's subsider was one of the worst video games of all time, and one of the biggest commercial failures in video game history. It is cited as a major contributing factor to the video game industry crash of 1983, which had been frequently referenced and mocked in popular culture as a cautionary tale about the dangers of a rush game development and studio interference. And of course, it led to the, the urban legend, where basically uh, all the unsold copies of E.T. were pretty much supposedly dumped in the landfill somewhere in New Mexico. And it was... Then 2014, they actually found him. That that myth was actually true, and um, yeah. And looking at the video game, it sucked. I see reviewers on it. It's like I can see why. I mean, you gave a developer five and a half weeks. It's like, and of course, at that time, you know, 
VHS wasn't available yet, beta. It's like the film just barely got released around that time. It's like the creator developer didn't have time to watch the whole film and try to get as much as he can. Yeah. I mean, it was like a rush job, but I know what was that one show that kind of made fun of it as well? Uh, it was like a show that was on G4. Oh my god, G4, that was a long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, it was one of the they said it was like one of the most contributing factors of the game crash was that was I think because as soon as that happened, it just the public just stopped lost interest. There, people were afraid of if this was bad. It was going to be worse for everybody else, and it kind of hurt Atari in that point. And you know, and then a lot, like I said, and then like a lot of people were starting to get away from arcades. You know, people were growing up, and they were, I guess, to the point they were getting tired of the same old shit. And that's when the market like went down in those video games. It, like you know, pretty much it took a big dip. And pretty much, you know, it pretty much led to a company that came out of nowhere to save the day. And that company will be Nintendo. And people don't realize, it's like, when I, talk, when I tell people, like, or tell people, like, our cousins or relatives and friends, say, hey, Nintendo's actually an old company. They weren't just a video game developer. They were a conglomerate. But honestly, they were, they've been around since the late 1800s. And I just pull up, like, the history of Nintendo, like, this is the history of Nintendo, it's from Wikipedia, it was founded, Nintendo was founded as Yamauchi Nintendo by Fuzajiro Yamamuchi on September 23rd, 1889, based in Kyoto, Japan, a business produced and marketed Hanafuda, which is like a train, uh, like a playing card. The name Nintendo is commonly assumed to mean, leave luck to heaven, but there are no historical records to validate this assumption. The cards, which were all handmade, soon began to gain popularity, and Yamauchi had to hire assistance to mass-produce cards to keep up with the demand. Fuzajiro Yamauchi did not have a son to take over the company business following the common Japanese tradition. He adopted his son-in-law, Sekiro Kaneda, who then legally took his wife's last name, Yamauchi, in, Yamauchi, in 1929. Fuzajiro uh, Yamauchi retired from the company and allowed Sekiro Kaneda to take over the company as president. In 1903, Sinkiro Kaneda established a joint venture with another company and renamed the company Yamauchi Nintendo Company. In 1947, Sinkiro established a distribution company called Maru Fuku Co. Limited to distribute the Hanafuda as well as several types of cards produced by Nintendo. Sinkiro Kaneda also had daughters, so again, his son in law, Shikanojo Naba, renamed Shikanojo Yamauchi, was adopted into the family. Um, Shiganochi later abandoned his family and did not become coming present. So his son, Hiroshi Shamauchi, was brought up by his grandparents and later took over the company instead of his dad. So yeah, it, they were pretty much, uh, they made cards. They made playing cards. I don't know if it was like a, like a poker style game in Japan. And the, the pen artwork. And pretty much, you know, they didn't go into everything is. It was like, it, even if they decided to change, um... They made innovative um, in 1949. Um, the company got renamed again to, to Nintendo Karuta. And, and Nintendo Karuta, uh, 1953, they became the first company in Japan to produce playing cards from plastic. In 1956, Yamauchi visited the U.S. to engage in talks with the United States playing card company, the dominant playing card production in the U.S. based in Cincinnati. He was shocked to find the world's biggest company in this business was good to using a small office. That was a term for Yamauchi who then realized the limitations of the playing card business. Uh, and pretty much Nintendo actually got some notoriety when they actually looked here. They actually got a deal with Disney to license their characters on the, on the Hanafuda playing cards. So Nintendo had like images of Mickey Mouse and all that, all the crew pretty much on the back of the cards. Licensing. 
And pretty much in 1963, the company was, the playing card company was named to Nintendo. Mm. And pretty much they became like a conglomerate. They started doing like, I guess they did, apparently according to this article, between 1963 and 1968, they did everything about a taxi company, love hotel chain, food company, trying to sell instant rice, learn instant noodles, and some other things. Including a vacuum cleaner, Chiatori, which later appear in two-player game, Wireware. All these ventures eventually failed, except toy making, which they had been some experience from selling playing cards. In 1964, while Japan experienced the economy the Olympics, the playing card business reached a saturation point. Japan also stopped buying playing cards, and the price of the stock fell from 900 to 60 yen. And 1965, Nintendo hired Gunpei Yokoi as a maintenance engineer for assembly. However, Yokoi soon became famous much more this video repair career belts. And if you guys don't know who Gunpei Yokoi is, he's the inventor of the Game Boy. He was the one of the developers, he was the creator of the Game Boy. So, pretty much, they were, this company, Nintendo, at the time, like I said, they were making games. They were making toys. Um, and they also made, like, those uh, little um, LED games called the Game of Watch series. Those little crystal display ones. And they, as well, decided at the time, you know, they were, they saw that when the Magnavox Box House came out in 1974, they became fascinated by it and pretty much decided, you know what? Um, let's do something for the market. And Nintendo, at the time, um, pretty much, well, they got the rights to secure the Magnavox ISC in Japan in 1975. So at that time, they were just a licensor. They decided to license the, like, a deal with Magnavox to distribute their products in Japan. Yeah. Which they pretty much, um, they had the problem and they released the Color TV game, which include different games. It says here, um, the first art video game arcade game was 1975's EVR Race, and four others followed the next several years. Radio Scorpion.com became most famous for this. Early 80s, Nintendo saw Nintendo's uh, early 80s saw Nintendo's game division led by Yokoi, creating some of its most famous arcade titles. The Master Pop was created in 1981. Of course, Shigeru Miyamoto, he came off of college, you know, he got he applied for Nintendo and they hired him on to help develop Donkey Kong. And of course, um, Miyamoto now today is pretty much the one of the faces of Nintendo. He's one of the guys who pretty much later on he will go on and make Mario and all those characters. And pretty much, you know, um, it's funny with Donkey Kong, but of course, you know, Nintendo didn't have a console at the time, so the only time you got to play Donkey Kong was in the arcades. And the funny thing about this thing is going to the film of this game, you know. Miyamoto, when he comes to game development, it's based either on his past experiences and stuff growing up as a kid. But this one, you know, like Donkey Kong itself was pretty much taking place like in a, it's a platform game, but took place on a construction site. Mm-hmm. And of course, you had a character who was not named Mario at the time, was known. It was really named, according to this, it was named as Mr. Video, then Jumpman. Of course, um, of course, you had Donkey Kong was the ape, and Pauline was the damsel in distress. And it was one of their first games, you know, to go into, to get like, you know, to pretty much uh, get into the American market. Because at the time, they were just making games, they didn't have a console yet. They were just trying to break into the market. And of course, you know, they, Nintendo's American staff was apprehended Donkey Kong to see commercially quickly in North America and Japan. Nintendo West is the game of Coleco, which developed the, who developed the home console versions for those platforms. Other companies cloned Nintendo's head in the boy to Roy T-Saw Scared. Miyamoto's characters appeared on cereal boxes, television cartoons, and dozen other places. A lawsuit brought by Universal City Studios 
Larry Universal Studios alleged Donkey Kong violated his trademark or King Kong. But of course they failed because apparently King Kong was in the public domain. So Nintendo avoided their first legal battle. Basically won their first legal battle, basically. And um, you played Donkey Kong before. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that game? The original one? Yeah. Oh, that's alright. Oh, I'm not really a big fan. But I like the N64 ones better. More of an adventure. That one was good for what it was worth. But you're really just Mario, so you're not really playing Donkey Kong. But for what it was, it was fun. Uh, I like Pac-Man more, too. But it has its place. I mean, Nintendo wouldn't be anywhere, too, without Donkey Kong. So, um, but I have, like, a, like a little specific... Um, a little nostalgic, like, lens when it comes to the older games. I still enjoy playing them now, um, but I run them through emulators. It's, so it's not exactly the same feel, but mm-hmm. those games are always going to be, I want to say, necessary. Uh, if you want to get the full scope of what, how far we've come and, as from the video game technology to what it is now. And, and I don't know if we'll see another crash, but the way a lot of these gaming companies are taking some sort of liberties. I I think indie gaming it needs to still find its uh, foothold because a lot of the major developing houses are kind of being a little, I want to say, being Open. lazy with their stuff and uh, rush, rush projects if like, you don't know how the video game industry is really really a sore spot for developers who actually just want to use their craft who are really interested in making video games but the dark side of that are these companies who run them ragged and it's hard to it's hard to purchase games or let alone bash them when they these people worked a lot really hard to dedicate themselves into getting a product finished during very stressful times and I, and we constantly see publishers or the people who make the, the executive decisions to move a game along and we see them constantly just not listen to the fans mm-hmm. and we're we're gonna I think we'll see a different type of crash in video games if we haven't already I think with the loot crate stuff and I think and with like pay for and play stuff, yeah. yeah the pay for play on on some of these major systems and games that are coming out from I'm not from third party, not from AAA um, publishers, but you know, main ones like EA or Ubisoft or um, even Square Enix. I don't know. Just a lot of these, a lot of these companies, they just fucking want a nickel and dime you, and they give you a a half-assed product, and they try to keep it coming back. So the cell phone model, when it came to mobile gaming, bled into the to the major consoles, and I think that's why PC gaming is kind of getting a, a new rejuvenation mm-hmm. um, with platforms such as Steam and, and uh, th- being them being more open source and able to help give you access to different tiles that, and if you have a a, a tablet or, or a mini PC to do it, I think it's, it's I mean I've known people who've made full custom builds on their computers just for gaming alone and, and with the delays and, and the first, like we'll say for the Xbox and PS4 like that shit, like I think it's good that PC is kind of giving them a run for their money. Yeah. Um, I might not particularly be more into playing games on PC. I, I, I do enjoy its place and what it has on the, in the industry, but I, I want to see a, a good balance again. And, but the consoles and the developers on that, and they need to really step it up because we can't. I'm sick of these half-assed games that get made and compared to what they came from. 
and what they are now it's just it, there's no excuse for that it's like i like for a way now what um let you get would have said that make a game too fast it'll be bad delay a game it'll be better it'll be better yeah and that's why i think we're now with you know Project Red right now, they decided to delay Cyberpunk because they want to make sure, you know, they want to take their time on it. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. I know people are saying, oh, why it's not coming out. But think about it. There's been so many examples of games that were released too fast, too early, that had so many glitches to the point that sales dropped for it. Yeah. Example, Sonic 06. Oh, yeah. That was pressured by the console market. It was kind of because they were spots. It's because Sega was, they felt, they thought they were pressured. You know, to make the game, and that's what happened. That game became infamous for, for so many bugs and so many glitches. It was a rush job because it was going to be the first Sonic game on the at that time, like the 360 and the PS3. At that time, the next generation, they decided to rush. So you know, that's kind of one. That's good. That to me, that's a good example to say because that was I had Sonic 06 and it sucked. I couldn't play it. I'm a big Sonic fan, but it was a game I couldn't play it. It was horrible. I don't know how people played it, but it was horrible. They like they were trying to make it like a movie. They were trying I don't know what they were trying to do with that film. With that game. And it, it was it was so bad it cra- it it was bad. But that I'm like for the fact that sometimes sometimes studios have to take a delay of the works. It makes sense. Take your time. You're not in a rush. Mm-hmm. It's like with me right now, you know, I have a PS4. I'm not in a rush to get a new console because number one there's games announced for PS4 for next year. So it's like, there's not a rush. Because what's going to happen? You get the PS5, you don't know how it's going to be. Xbox Series X, you don't know how it's going to be the first generation. My thing is, never buy a first generation console after its first release. The PS4 I have is the second generation. I think it came out like two years. I bought it in 2015. It was a two-year model, a 2015 model. Because I made that mistake with the Xbox 360, and how many Xbox 360 I went through just to finally get one that actually works. I went through three. Because the one I got was the first one off the line, and that crashed not even a month. So, yeah. And going back to the topic at hand, yeah. Stalin Cup became one of those critical success games. Of course, Nintendo decided. Gun a little bit, Gunpoi decided to help, you know, at the time he was an engineer, he decided to come and develop the game and watch series. This is before the Game Boy. Which pretty much made it like a portable thing where they have like LCD screens, but there's like these pre-made images. And what it does, like it, it shows like pre-made images. I was like at that time, it was like the portable gaming market. So it was kind of cool, you know. And they sold a lot of units. So they decided, you know, time to decide, you know what? Um, seeing that the the video game market was getting strong in Japan with the Atari and everything, they decided, you know what? Let's make our own. Mm-hmm. And what they did was. They decided to develop a system called the Famicom, also known as shorthanded for the family computer. And it became their first attempt to make a cartridge-based console. It said the system sold about five, over 500,000 units within two months at a price of about, at about 100 U.S. dollars. However, there are a few months of favorite sales and some received claims that some Famicom consoles were freeze when the player attempted to play certain games. Falls found a malfunctioning chip in the town decided to recall all Famicom units which were currently on its store shelves. It cost them approximately half a million. And of course, Nintendo decided at the time, you know, they took a big risk of releasing the Famicom in the US, which of course they decided to uh, design it and pretty much rebrand it as the Nintendo Entertainment System. And of course, they had offices in New York at the time. 
because that they need like a U.S. Uh, New York office pretty much to, when it comes to like shipping the, the games overseas. And of course, people don't realize New York was the first market when it comes to home console. Was the test market because Nintendo had their offices based there, their warehouses were based there. That's why today you see the Nintendo store near Rockefeller Center because that's one of their homes. And um, pretty much they decided, you know what? And the funny thing is. Well, but the game crash was, of course, licensing was the biggest deal. The game crash was, of course, licensing and royalties. Nintendo became infamous because they put a strict thing of guidelines. Just get Nintendo's seal quality. So they had a, like, companies who had to pay a fee. Developers had to pay a fee if they wanted a game feature on the Nintendo system. Had to follow these guidelines, but to, just to get their get done system, like, Nintendo will actually ship them the cartridge model. Like, the design, like, the actual shell. So that way they can get the chips and the kits and everything. But they had to follow certain things just to get the Nintendo licensing, get the seal approval. That's why you see a lot of Nintendo games that were that they called them the unlicensed Nintendo games. That the cartridges are kind of weird. Because Nintendo had the pretty much they had a patent to the actual cartridge design. At the time they had the patent, so for you to get like a thing with Nintendo, like you had to like follow like, certain guidelines to get the licensing. Even plus, Nintendo's two. the Google of uh, is the Google of of, of video game industries. They they want to still remain distinct <laughs> for the days to come, but they're very particular who they want to work with and how they're represented. And uh, the, unfortunately, when you kind of are strict on your public image and what you put out, that could also hinder your accessibility for fans or for developers who who idolize you or group up with your properties to really want to contribute to that same vision but you also hinder that and uh it's uh sad that we are still seeing those effects today <laughs> yeah so it's us that you know what we're gonna um we're gonna develop a gaming console the nes in the us um they decided to test market in new york it was released in 1995, 1985, so the Final Cut came out in 83, and Japan. And so in those two years, you know, they decided, you know, the title of Japan decided to hold off. So how the game console market was going bad in the U.S. And they wanted to take any necessary steps before they released the console. And of course, they decided to do this little marketing campaign. That's why they went and designed the, the system. And the control scheme is pretty much the same as the Famicom. Don't think precision you can take the controllers off. Versus like the Famicom, they were, the, the, the controllers were built into the console. And it was a top-down, top-down, like the cartridge was a little bit longer in the Famicom. It was a top-down one. Versus the, the console, you had like the NES, you had to like open up the, the, the slot and put it in there. <laughs> and of course, it gets like, the whole myth of the blowing into the cartridge to make it work. Which apparently it was a bad thing to do because you were actually hurting it more than saving it. They said the best thing was, and I didn't know years later, was pretty much, um, pretty much using a cotton swab and just wiping the dust off. Yeah. Versus like blowing into it because you were pretty much blowing more dust into the, into the cartridge itself. So pretty much they released in New York, and of course at that time you know they needed a, a kind of like an unofficial mascot at the time. And you look at Jumpman. And of course, they decided, you know, when Shigeru Miyamoto was developing the character, became like Mario Bros. became pretty much a spinoff of Donkey Kong. So they took that character because, you know, at times Joe Man was portrayed as the villain, as the antagonist. Like in Donkey Kong 2, he was the antagonist. But um, they decided, you know what? 
let's take this character. So she gave me a little, you know, to come up with an idea. He's a plumber because of the pipes and stuff. Because of course, my first came out as an arcade game, and then when it was Mario and Luigi. But before he got those names, was you know there was gonna be an Italian plumber from Brooklyn. Um, at that time, their landlord at the warehouse at the time his name was Mario Sagali, who was beloved. And honestly, he didn't ask for any compensation. They said he was really nice. And he was Mario Sagali, and they decided to name the character after him. So they named Mario after him. And of course, so the whole concept of, you know, Mario's going to save the princess in this Mushroom Kingdom was based on Miyamoto's, you know, love of fantasy stories. And the time when he was a kid growing up. So, of course, they had the game, and they, uh, they had the thing, and they started making accessories called Rob the Rollout. So they started making the Zapper. And pretty much, um, it has smart and it says here in the Teletext Park in the Nintendo Entertainment Console in New York on October 18, 1985. So pretty much, they tested it there, which did pretty well, and then decided the following year, in February, they decided to test it in LA, Chicago, and San Francisco. And it says here, but they will go on to national by the end of 1986, along with 15 games sold separately. In the US and Canada, it also its competitors by a wide margin. And it's also the year that Metroid and Super Mario Bros. 2, the Japanese version, was released. And of course, it led to Legend of Zelda, was released too much critical acclaim. So basically, Nintendo kind of saved the video game market. Because what it was is, I think what kind of helped too was the appeal. Because you got to think, people were brushed off at the game crash, but I think what kind of brought them was the graphics. Because there were 8-bit graphics, and they looked more colored, more crisp than what the Atari version was. And this was a company that, you know, people they never heard of. They, it came from Japan. But they had a few games in the cabinets and arcades with Radar, Scope, and Donkey Kong. But, you know, Nintendo decided, to them, they decided to teach you a huge gamble. This is a Japanese company, like I said. Better off since the late 1800s. Main playing cards. They were conglomerate. They made toys. Taking a big risk to get into the video game market after licensing, you know, for other companies... Jump in a market that suffered a crash for two years and taking a big risk to see if they got sold. And I know they did a really good marketing campaign for NES. I know my mom remembered the commercials, our mom remembered the commercials, but she bought us like she like the NES was my first console. That was my first thing in the video games, was the NES. And I had Super Mario Bros. I had a few games, so I had some learning games as well. But in like I said, if it weren't for Nintendo, I don't think we would be talking about them today. And this is a company that decided, you know, what, a few years ago, they decided to go to mobile gaming as well. Mm -hmm. How Nintendo was so, you know, protected of their IPs. They didn't want to expand to anything. And now, with Nintendo being so more open, I mean, they're kind of more pro protected of their IPs, but they're allowing, like, now if you go on the Switch Online store, you can see a lot of indie games on there. There's a lot of good selection of indie games on there. Like, they're embracing, you know, creativity and, you know, development um like i said if, if i have to credit nintendo with being you know the the sign of the deciding factor being bringing the video game love back to the u.s so i would say hats off to nintendo mm -hmm. i mean i do want to talk more about the video game history but of course my birthday i do want to you know, we do have some plans later, so I just wanted to take the time today, you know, to get this episode out for you guys. Um, we'll talk more about the video game, you know, the, the rise of video games after the crash. You know, Nintendo's road, of course, the rising of the Sega. So, of course, Sega, it's a great their anniversary as well. I do want to talk to Sega in the next episode.
Well, like I said, we're going to do like a little, like a second part of the episode dedicated to beating game history. Like I said, what Pico said, knowledge is power. <laughs> no, just so, Pico, anything to add before we wrap up? Um, I want to say uh, keep uh, informed, stay educated, uh, try to have conversations that make you feel uncomfortable, try to first change yourself within. Um, don't get bogged down on the, the news cycle that's constantly churning, just a bunch of negative shit. Try to see the good. Um, try to find some things that make you just take the time to do stuff that you feel is important for you and try to find a hobby for fuck's sake. Like, I don't know your situation, but if it's, if you have some time in your hands, you know, go to things that you love to do that makes you happy. Uh, try not to get, but stay informed and be aware, but also take the time to make the change from within because we can't do it. Um, and black lives still matter. They always will. Uh, if you want to pay attention to American politics, fuck, just try not to stay in there more that in that cesspool for more than an hour because trust me, you're just going to get even more disappointed. Uh, and I don't want to bring that up on the podcast because I don't want to focus on that shit right now. So just do what you can to make your life better every day. And like I said, um, the book I was talking about is called um, Power Up. Oh, I forgot who wrote the book. It's called Power Up, How the Japanese Real Market Changed the World. It's a great read, definitely gives you the history of like how the Japanese video game market kind of helped the American video game history. Um, so I think there's another book called The History of Video Games as well. That's more a condensed version of it. Um, like I said, um, I know there's like the show, there's a show on G4 called Icons, but I think you can find it on YouTube. Somebody actually uploaded the episodes on YouTube. It's called G4 TV Icons. And it's like their own like documentary series on certain topics in the video game industry. So definitely check that out. I believe it's on YouTube as well. But like I said, we'll, we'll keep this conversation going for the later episodes just to give our thing up in the video game history of the video games growing up. And of course, some other lighthearted like stuff that's going on. Like, like I said, like Biko said, you know, keep reading, educate yourself, you know, keep having conversations. Yeah. All right. That wraps it up for today. So hope you guys enjoyed this last day of June. Oh, I also mentioned that I'm happy Pride Day. Mm-hmm. I know Pride Month is ending, but shout out to the... LGBTQ um, community. Hope you guys are enjoying. Hope everyone's enjoying Pride Month as well. I do support everyone's rights. And that's it. Um, we'll wrap it up as always. I am the franchise. I'm Miko. Geek on. Take care. Stay safe. Wash your hands. And Black Lives Matter. <laughs>